Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better to not marry. Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept his word, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. This is God's word. Well, good morning. We're in for a great morning today. Turn to your neighbor and say, you'd be a great eunuch. I think you'd be a great eunuch. Come on, just tell him. I think you'd be an amazing, amazing eunuch. It's, of course, a joke. It's, of course, a joke. If you came in today and did not receive a message card upon your entrance, you can raise your hand right quick, and one of our ushers would love to serve you. Thank you, Meredith, so much for reading today's teaching text. And uh, we're starting this series, Best Blank Ever. And um, I know we always run the risk within a church congregation of communicating that all we care about in relationship series are married folks. And that could, that could not be further from the truth. And I think if you go back and listen to our relationship series over the last few years, you see that we always kick off that series by talking about the issue of singleness and what it means to be single in today's culture and also understanding what healthy relationships and friendships look like. Now, you can tell from my wife reading the text today, I am not single. I'm not an expert on singleness, but I have, and I want you to hear me, I have been a pastor for 15 years I've been in Atlanta, Georgia for eight of those 15 years, and the vast majority of people that I've pastored are single. Most of the hundreds, if I guess thousands of people now by now in some capacity that I've been in contact with are indeed single. It's not an exaggeration at all for me to say that I've had hundreds of hours of counseling, hundreds hours of meeting for coffee and processing the lives, thoughts, and passions of people who are single. And we as a nation right now are only increasing as a culture in the rate and the duration of singleness. Now, for the first time in all of U.S. history, there are more single people in this generation as what we call a fully formed generation. That is that our dates are done. They're a fully formed generation than any other generation of married people. In fact, right now, the median age of the first marriage in America has risen to 29 and a half years old for men. Follow along with me, fellas. 29 and a half. And for women, it has reached 27.4. Pretty amazing. 27.4. By the time young adults reach the age of 50 in this generation, one in four young adults, by the time they're 50, will have been single their entire life. Their entire life. This is epoch shifts in a culture. This is unlike any cultural shift that we've seen since the inception of our nation. The reality of singleness. Now, depending in this room on your background, this is going to hit you differently. You're going to feel it differently. If you perhaps are from an Asian family, you might feel the crazy amounts of pressure from your parents. That we were immigrants, we moved to America, we worked hard for you to go to that school. Now it's time for you to pay us back with grandkids. 
It's time for you to get married. You might feel that pressure. The African-Americans in our culture feel something altogether different. They have a different situation because a generation of fathers have been missing from their generation. From relationship to incarceration, there is a generation that has completely been taken from the black community. If you're a Latino community or part of the Latino community, traditionally they have a very strong sense of family and obligation. But I will tell you, even by ministry to Latinos today, as a people in America that continually move towards what we call an American vision of life, whatever that is, we realize that even the Latinos are fracturing in the family. The LGBTQI community, which is, is, is very, very large in our nation, they're trying to answer the question right now is, is how do marriage and singleness relate one to another? How does this fit together? And I want to say from the outset this morning that the Apostle Paul's heart in writing about singleness is that you would not be anxious about singleness. That's his whole reason for communicating, is that we wouldn't be anxious. And yet, today, I experience with talking to singles, that sing, I call it single anxiety, it is a rate unprecedented in the history of the American church. It's unprecedented. There was a great book that I just read, and I'm indebted greatly in this message. You'll, you'll find out that I'm, I'm going to do very little preaching today, I'm going to teach. I'm very indebted in this message to several sources that I've looked at pretty extensively over the last few weeks. There's one called Celebrate Sex, Singleness, Sexuality, and Life with Christ. And I want you to read what the, what the quote says. Singles today are a widow of sorts, needing to be listened to and needing, watch this, a framework for who we are and how we fit into the Christian family. What does it mean to abstain from sex while respecting sexual wirings? What does it mean to be content in one's singleness while longing towards marriage? Can I be sexual without a spouse? And is a spouse something I'm allowed to keep hoping for? What does it mean to be beautiful and embody sexuality? What does it mean to wait well and proactively to, to, or to desire genuinely and passionately? Again, celebrate sex, singleness, sexuality. So a lot of times what we hear in today's culture is a root fear about loneliness. I know I do as a pastor, a sense of rejection, a sense of unfulfilled longings. Maybe you're in here and you're single and you're a bit older and your body is changing and you're worried if you'll ever be able to have children. I didn't see my life going this way, Pastor Craig. I certainly didn't see me being single for this amount of years. Maybe you're seeing your friends get married around you, one after the other, the next and the next. You get on social media and you see people having a second child and a third child and a fourth child and a fifth child. And, and they even have a backyard, a green backyard for kids to play in. And you're still living in a townhome or an apartment. Maybe you're asking right now, am I becoming less desirable as my body gets older? All of a sudden, the younger people keep flooding the market called singleness. Every May, thousands upon hundreds of thousands graduate from the university setting and flood the market. And now I'm getting older and my body's getting less desirable. And am I going to ever have somebody? How, how do I trust God, Pastor Craig, as a single person? Do I use technology? Do I use dating apps? Should I go onto websites? I'm in a relationship and I don't think there's a, a future to our relationship. I'm not really into them, but I'm really lonely. So what should I do? Should I date a, a supportive non-believer? Have the roles changed? Can I date supportive non-believers now? What about sexual baggage? Are there enough eligible people at this church? Are there enough eligible people at the other church I attend after this church to find an eligible church? Dear God, are there enough eligible people in the city of Atlanta, Georgia? Where are you, God? 
How do I know, Pastor Craig, when to let down the appropriate levels of vulnerability? I don't have the gift of singleness and I'm on fire. What the heck, God? How many more years? I don't know if you know this or not, but at the same time gay marriage was being institutionalized or being ruled a part of the constitutional right of America for the gay community, there was a Supreme Court justice. His name was Justice Kennedy. He wrote a book called The Majority Opinion. I went back and looked through it this week, and this is what he said. He wrote multiple works, but this is what he said. He said, marriage responds to the universal fear that a lonely person might call out only to find no one there. It often is, he says, offers the hope of companionship and understanding and assurance that while we both still live, there will be someone to care for the other. Leave that quote up for a moment. I don't know if you've heard this before or you paid attention to this. While the gay community was accessing the very institution of marriage, the very ruling of that happening infuriated a whole generation of single people. Why? Because the single people heard the justice saying that there's no life or value for single people. This infuriated our nation. Single people saying, do I have no value without marriage? Do I have no value intrinsically unless I'm married? Now on top of that, in our culture we're experiencing at an alarming rate what we call the removal of sexual taboos or taboos. At previous times in our culture, sex was kind of one of the main drivers of marriage. What do you mean, Craig? There were sexual taboos of sex outside marriage. So what happened is your sexual energy got channeled into marriage. When you had great sexual energy as a teenager, it got channeled towards marriage. But in our modern culture, where all sexual taboos have been removed, and pornography, might I add, is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's being engaged by everyone. Many young men are now saying women are too hard, and porn is more enjoyable than real sex. And so I'm just going to keep having sex with a screen. I'm going to keep doing that. That's an alarming rate, by the way. In 2011, I came across this week, Phil Zimbardi. He did a TED Talk, amazing TED Talk. He said, what is porn doing to our kids today? He wrote, this, this TED Talk was called The Demise of Guys. He pointed out two important things. He said, with porn, we're seeing a death in two things in the men of our culture. He said, number one, they've lost all drive to be successful. They lost all drive for jobs. They don't want good jobs anymore. And secondly, they're flaking out on women sexually. What do you mean? In other words, they're becoming impotent and can't even function. They can't even function. I don't know if you know this or not. I'm not trying to be graphic, but over 30% now of 18 to 28-year-olds are are reporting ED, erectile dysfunction, as young adults because of the super stimuli of what pornography is doing. They're unable to interact with a spouse. They're unable to have erection even in the sexual relationship or intercourse with another spouse. So why? Why is this happening? Because guys are leveling up with video games and they're having sex with screens. And what we don't under-realize is in, in 2011, Dr. Patrick Combs, he described internet pornography as a supernatural stimulus. He said it's potentially to lead dysfunction with a normal person. And this is what he said. It takes the brain and it raises the brain to a level that requires that same amount of stimulation so that now being with a woman will not work for the rest of that man's life. And he said the problem is, this is in 2011, you get kids who start in the fifth grade. Now, the newest book, I know this is surprising to some, but the newest study out of 100 universities involved in America, they asked the current college students that are in college right now, when did you start looking at pornography? And 40% of men and 36% of women started looking at internet pornography before the age of 10. That is in the current landscape of where we are right now. And parents haven't a clue. My parents 
haven't a clue. Oh, I don't, uh, there's no way they're having access. I'm going to tell you, folks, in the next hundred years, we have a tsunami coming of a health crisis, of a marriage crisis, of major issues to deal with in our culture. Now, you think about that in the removal of sexual taboos, they've changed the game. And I can just imagine if you're in this room today and you're single, you're going to feel this. You're going to experience this. So my question is this. If the way of Jesus and singleness is not good news, then what are we doing here? Right? What are we doing here? So what does the Bible say about singleness? Let me ask it this way. What is a good theology of singleness? What I want to do this morning is I've got four points. None of them are really controversial. Okay? And then what I'm going to do is after I lay this foundation, I'm going to lean into the hard stuff. I'm going to lean into the squabble, lean into the challenging conversations of singleness in our culture. The Bible, number one, in its essence, affirms singleness. Everybody say affirmation. The Bible affirms singleness. What do you mean? First of all, Jesus, who is the archetype of all humanity, he is the manliest man. He's the archetype of human nature. He is ultimately and was single. Now, if you say, watch, if you say, oh, it was easy, he was God, you, my friend, have bad theology. You have just now fallen into docetism, and if you lived in the third century, you would have been been stoned. Why? Because we believe in the dual nature of Christ. He was fully God and fully man. So don't skip over Jesus being single. Oh, well, he was God. That took care of his desires and temptations. No, 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 no. He was fully man, and he was fully God. We can't jump over the fact that Jesus Christ was a single man and leveraged his singleness for the sake of the kingdom of God. Listen, the greatest major affirmation of singleness today is Jesus was single. Here's second one, the Apostle Paul, greatest missionary who ever lived. We've never seen a greater missionary. Notice he wasn't just a missionary. He wasn't just single to be a missionary. It seems he was, and this is where I want us to go today. I hope that the Lord drops this in your lap. He was seized by what I'm going to call a beatific vision, a vision of understanding that there is an upward call of God on his life. That's what he called it in Philippians. He called it the upward call of God, that what happened is he got this such a beautiful picture of the beauty and the majesty of Jesus that he reoriented his entire identity from what we call horizontal relationships back to a vertical relationship. He got a vision and a heart based on the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of Christ and the encounter he had with Jesus Christ. So listen to me, hear me. He wasn't just single just so he could serve God. He was single because of the revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. And he was single because of the beauty he found in that single God-man. Thirdly, how does the Bible affirm singleness? The Bible, inside of the Bible, is what we call the inherent or contains the inherent dignity of the human individual. Now listen, church, this was revolutionary in the time of Jesus. Why? Because in the first century, all sources of identity and dignity were tied to your family. Every bit of dignity you had was tied to your family. Let me go through history real quick. For the Romans, it was Roman honor. It was Roman honor. The father was the father figure. He was a patriarchal society. A society, and his ability to build a line and legacy is what made and gave identity to the kids. Women were valued in the Roman Empire for their ability to have children, especially male children. Women's intrinsic value was childbearing. So when Scripture comes along and says, "In Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, slave nor free, but one are in Christ, or we are all one in Christ." One theologian I read says this: that was the most radical reorientation of the value of personhood in, um, uh, in, in recorded human history. In recorded human history. This wasn't even a concept or value. 
of the people. And what Jesus was saying is, listen, your value and your dignity is not tied to your social status. Your social standing in the Roman family has nothing to do with your intrinsic value. Then fourthly, how does the Bible affirm it? The Bible affirms singleness with an eschatological vision. Eschatological means end time, study of end things. An eschatological vision, when we will actually be married to the Lamb. An eschatological vision, what is this? Christians hold to this vision that is eschatological. It's a very beautiful vision of marriage that's very extraordinary. Because I want you to hear me, even married folks. Marriage at its very best points to our relationship with Christ. Are you ready? And marriage at its very best is an institution built by God to leverage people's ability to build the kingdom of God. That's all marriage is. Oh yes, it's made for procreation and enjoyment, but it's built by God to leverage our strengths, to have our weaknesses be usurped by the strength of our spouse so that we can leverage it for the kingdom of God. But when you die, that's it. We don't believe in eternal marriage. We do not have a Mormon vision of marriage at dwelling place. If you're in a bad marriage, of course, this can be very wonderful news. Okay, it is not eternal. Just hold on for a few more years. If you're in a great marriage... This could be a touch sad. But I want you to see, it's, a, it's not a small thing to have an eschatological vision and a clock on marriage because marriage at its best is temporary. It's temporary. Now, all I've said up to this point in those four statements is clear. And you're aware there's not much squabble. There's not much controversy about the things that we've talked about up to this point. But now what I want to do is I want to lean into something a little bit more, a little bit more challenging. And that is the squabble of singleness, the controversy of singleness. Paul Tillich said this, one of my favorite theologians, he said, our language, watch this, has wisely sensed the two sides of being alone. He said, we have created the word loneliness to express the pain of being alone, and we've created the word solitude to express the glory of being alone. So in this single experience, folks, there is a tremendous tremendous bandwidth of personal experience. In other words, we've got language now in the English language to define both extremes. We've got people that are far left that have an absolute overwhelming obsession with marriage, and then we have people that are on the far right that are absent. And I'm not speaking of left and right in terms of political stance. We have people on the far right that are deeply opposed to the institution of marriage. So think about this. When you talk about singleness in the Christian culture, you see these two extremes. We have an idolizing of the unhealthy idolizing of the marital status. Marriage will bring me completion. Marriage will fulfill all my desires. Having sexual fulfillment with one spouse for the rest of my days will be it. It will redeem the emptiness I feel. That's what marriage will do. And then we have people on, and then even in this one, I should say, the Christians, as Christians, we throw around language like this I just need my soulmate. I just need my soulmate. Uh, the ever insightful Tim Keller, who I love to read, also disagree with a lot theologically, but I really agree with a lot theologically. He said this. Uh, I use this book in premarital counseling. He said, I want someone who will fill every vacancy in me. I want someone who awaken dormant gifts inside and continuously enrapture me in otherworldly emotional bliss. Strangely enough, this puts tremendous pressure on another human being. <laughs> Strangely enough, 
Can I just stop and say for a moment, the construct of romance as we experience it in our culture is basically a modern invention. Did you know our cultural construct of romance has only been around for about 50 years? You say, Craig, what do you mean? It is not consistent through human ages. What do you mean? It's been terribly marketed to us. Marriage historically was about the uniting of families. Marriage historically through all of the ages, it was historically a group decision. It was not a man and a woman going off by themselves and falling in love on a date. It involved dowries. It involved family lines. It involved family drama. It was very strong gender roles. The gender roles had to be communicated and perceived and then received by the, the components or the person, the people, the candidates of marriage. And this is how marriage was played out for most of history. So you say, Craig, what do you mean? I'm just telling us that romance in many ways and our obsession with it in the Western world is basically the rewriting of our skips around Hollywood and by Hollywood in many ways to sell us a story, to sell us a movie, to sell us a book. But it is a modern invention. This is what we call romantic kind of construct. In fact, Abby Smith says this. She says, singles idolize marriage and treat it as the ultimate goal. And then marrieds are stuck searching for the idealized marriage that they for so long idolized. That they're looking to this point of romanticism that actually is only about 50 years old. They're looking to an idolization of something in our, our American construct that causes us to say, you know what, I, I feel like this will fulfill all of my dreams. So, so we definitely see this, right? I, I know in my own life, I see this great tension. So um, when I got married, I was a mature godly man. Very mature, 21 years old. My wife had just ripely turned 23. And um, I remember when I went to Lee University, I was 18 years old. I went to pursue pastoral ministry. I was going to go be a pastor. And it was a Bible college of sorts, but I had this wrong assumption that um, I had just recently got born again, felt the call of God. And I thought everybody else going to this school would definitely feel the call of God. And personal devotion to the Lord would be the last thing that would be lacking in their lives. It was a Bible college of sorts, but you know what they called it? They called it a bridal college. Okay? They called it a bridal college. Why? Y'all, that was accurate. The freshman hookup scene on Lee University Christian Campus was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. People actually went to Lee for what they called an MRS degree. They wanted to be married. They were going. Why? Because I just need some spiritual leader. I just want a soulmate. Can I be a pastor's wife? I just, need to, I just need to be connected deep down in my Christian fellowship with another individual. And so to view singleness, singleness was like this horrible purgatory. It was relegated to the Catholic church and it had to be endured for many years until you finally got to that God-honoring state called marital bliss. Now what happens is others in our culture... They swing to the opposite side, and their basic framework, watch this, is opposition to the institution of marriage. They've gone on the other side of our culture and said, you know what, I'm all against covenantal relationships. I read a book just recently by Zygmunt Bowman. He's an atheist Jewish philosopher. I think they have a picture of the book. Um, it's a fascinating. He wrote a series of books, and uh, one that he I highly recommends called Liquid Love. Now, he's an atheist. He is an atheist, but he's Jewish. And what he does in this book is he talks about how we as humans in America do not know how to form healthy attachments anymore. It's brilliant in ministry. 
We don't know how to communicate and we don't know how to form healthy attachments. And he says, according to those who oppose this in our culture, they think that marriage is a legalized form of slavery and patriarchal oppression. Now listen, I understand there were abuses. I understand there were abuses to our constructs and structural reality over the last 50 years. But let me tell you something. Feminism, and I'm not here to beat up feminism, but let me speak truthfully to feminism in a minute. Feminism in many ways has pushed back so badly against this that a woman is now told, you don't need a man ever. And you don't need a man in your life at any moment. And marriage is slavery. Maintain your freedom. Some of you in this room, you, you come from divorced families. And you say, there is no way I'm getting married. No way. I ain't doing it. I ain't going that road. Maybe abuse has happened to you. And you are opposed to it. So in your mind, you never want to get married. But listen to me. It's not for godly reasons. It's for broken reasons. It's for broken reasons. You don't want to get married not for godly motivation, but for broken motivation. Eddie Cantor says this. He says, marriage, I love this, is an attempt to solve problems together which you didn't even have when you were on your own. Can you put that quote up there? Marriage is an attempt to solve problems together, which you didn't even have when you were on your own. There were no problems as a single person. Now you have to deal with the problems that you two created. And now in the middle of this, in the middle of this continuum, Jesus says something different. He's not opposed to marriage, and he's not obsessed with marriage. Instead, I forgot one of my markers. If you hand me one of those red markers next to you, babe. He, he actually communicates about marriage in a different way. And in the context of Matthew chapter 19, which you and I see, he actually says marriage is not obsession. Marriage is not opposition, but marriage, are you ready? Marriage is an opportunity. It's an opportunity. Now I want you to see this. The continuum now that Jesus communicates, and you have to understand, in Matthew 19, if you go back to our text, there is a rabbinical debate. Now you saw that I, I used the text about marriage and divorce, right? But within intrinsic into this passage on marriage and divorce is this issue of singleness. Now, right now, I've told you this before in last year's sermon, but there was a rabbinical debate going on. There were two schools of thought. The first group of rabbis believe you could divorce your wife for anything. If she burnt your toast, that's it, baby. You know, if she's going for the 49ers and you're going for the Chiefs, that's it, baby, right? I mean, there's that school of thought. Then there's a second school of thought that, listen, you could not divorce your spouse except for major, major offense. So they come to Jesus and they're trying to trap him in this issue of divorce. And watch how Jesus responds. You ready? Only like Jesus can respond. Look at verse 9. He says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Did y'all see that? You can hear the cultural shock off the pages. The disciples are overwhelmed and say, I can only get rid of her if she does wrong sexually towards me? No. I can never get out of this institution called marriage. I can never back out of this commitment. You see that, you hear it? The cultural shock is amazing. You have to pick up on that. Now look what Jesus goes on to say. He said, not everyone, not everyone can accept this word but only to those whom it has been given. Now watch this, verse 12. He goes on a rant. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, 
And there were eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. And the one who can accept this should accept it. Now before we jump to the Apostle Paul's language about marriage, let's listen to our Savior's language about marriage. There's an author named Barry Danilak, and Barry Danilak, he wrote a book called Redeeming Singleness. If you can work your way and wade your way through the academic regalia, it will yield a treasure for you. It's amazing, called Redeeming Singleness. And as I was reading through this, this is what Barry Danilak said. He says when it comes to the issue of eunuchs, he says Jesus is giving us a proposal that would have shocked the people. He's given us a third option that would have shocked the culture of the day. He says, number one, there were some people who were born eunuchs. Born. So it appears that Jesus has great understanding of what we call intersex conditions. People born with um, genitalia that are mutilated. Some people are born with genitalia that never drop. Some people, women are born with um, issues in their genitalia that are unable to have sex. These are called intersex conditions. And Jesus understands these. He knows them. He, com- he communicates about them. He says very clearly that these people are born that way. From the get-go, this is something that's happened to them. Then he says, number two, there are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs. You say, what is that? That that could be as they're either slaves, or it could be political realities, or it could even be occultic practices that were really, really big in the first century. In other words, they were castrated. They were made eunuchs. And then the third group, he says there are those who can choose to live like they are eunuchs. Watch this. For the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And if, listen, if you can accept that, Jesus said you should do it. He said you should do it. So in essence, he's saying you voluntarily choose to not have a family, you'd voluntarily choose to get a vision of heaven, to get a vision of the beauty of Christ, to get a vision of the marriage supper of the Lamb, to get a vision and be seized up in the upper call of God that you could live voluntarily like a eunuch. Now, you realize that is not popular in that day as it's not popular in today. You know what the Jews believed about marriage? Let me give you the Jewish view real quick. The Jewish view was a very strong, very, very strong disposition. They were opposed to eunuchs of any form. Judaism is against eunuchs. They were living out what we call the Genesis narrative. So they didn't live out of the Matthew narrative. They lived out of the Genesis narrative. And the Genesis narrative is you get married, procreate, have as many kids as you can, and fill the earth. In fact, I went last night on the internet. The New Encyclopedia of Judaism says this today, 2020. Marriage is a commandment in the Jewish tradition, and celibacy is deplored. In the Quran, let's look at the Quran. Quran, Muhammad said not to get married is to overstep the boundaries of the law, and celibate singleness is explicitly disallowed in Mormonism. Why? Because your eternal salvation, to get your own planet and to become your own God requires you're married so you can have a lot of kids and then you populate your planet with those kids. That's what Mormons believe. So watch this. There is now an eternal future that is totally gone for the single person. So in the day that Jesus lived, single people have no rights in future. The highest level of deities communicate to them, you have no purpose in life. There is no intrinsic value to you. So for the Jewish mentality, 
The way that you experience covenantal blessing, now we're getting somewhere now, you need, to, you need to hone in here. You had to marry and you had to have children, watch this, and you had to obey the law and you had to live in the land and you had to live under the physical blessing. That's the end game. If you were born in a Jewish family, you had a, if you were a Jewish person, you had a Jewish vision. And the Jewish vision communicated by your family, by your community, is that you're gonna live under the law of God, you're gonna get married, you're gonna have a large family, you're gonna fill the earth, you're gonna be a part patriarch you're going to have financial blessing you're going to have kids around you and that's the vision of salvation so anybody who's a eunuch who's not married who has had their genitals mutilated unable to have children they have no future in the jewish culture how could you participate in the system of covenantal blessing what vision is there for your life now let me look at the greek view that's jewish view greek view those who were eunuchs they, they took more of the classical form and they saw mutilation as the robbing of masculinity. If you were mutilated uh, or, or castrated, that was a feminization of man. You were feminized and there was no place in an honor culture. You cannot have honor in an honor culture as a eunuch. So watch this. For the pagans, there was no place for you. And for the Jewish community, there's no life for you. And Jesus walks up on the scene. You see how countercultural this is? The words of Jesus. So there was a class of people fully excluded from covenantal blessing and the rewards of God. In fact, in the Torah, it says, if you are a eunuch, you cannot worship God. That's what the Torah says. In fact, any animal found itself in that condition, a eunuch animal, could not be sacrificed on the altar for the sins of a family. So you can imagine if you're a eunuch, life is good, right? There's no place for you in your community. There's no covenantal life you'll ever experience. There's no covenantal blessing you're gonna have. And there you are, And Jesus comes to you and he says, some people are born eunuchs. He says, some people are made eunuchs, but I got good news for you. There are people I'm calling that you should try and spiritually become a eunuch. I'm calling people, it's a hard word, but if you'll hear it and heed it and accept it, then do it. And what do they say? They say what we say. This is a hard saying. This is a challenging saying. But Jesus says, well, there's a promise. And you say, what do you mean with the promise? See, when Jesus showed up on the scene, y'all, he was making a declaration, a new declaration about who people were, what their identity was, what the kingdom of God was like. Jesus opens up a whole new category of participants for those outside the confines of marriage. In fact, let's read. I used this text a couple years ago in in this congregation, but Isaiah 56, listen to what the prophecy says about eunuchs. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain. I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, I will give them within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. So watch this. So the eunuch was seen in Eastern culture as opposed to Greek culture and Jewish culture. The Easterns put major trust in eunuchs. You know why? Because eunuchs had no personal desires. They never thought about their family. So you know what the kings did? The kings hired eunuchs to be their personal assistants because they knew they would never forsake them and would never have anybody's interest at heart other than the kings. So guess what eunuchs got? Eunuchs got all the inheritance of the kings. And you know what the prophet is saying in Isaiah 750 years 
before, Jesus is saying, I've got that vision. In fact, I wrote that scripture. And that vision is this. Under the division of Jesus, the nature of the kingdom of God, you hear me, church, and the nature of singleness and the vision for covenant blessing completely shifts. Completely shifts. Y'all, this is an epoch shift. This is a major shift. Listen to the commentator. I want to read Banalak again. Listen to his quote, Banalak's quote. He said, the New Testament, watch this, don't miss this, does not interpret the mandate given to Adam, Noah, and Jacob as a divine imperative impinging upon all. Doesn't take the divine impingement of Genesis and apply it to New Testament times. Nor are traditional marriage, procreation, and material prosperity explicitly associated with covenantal blessing in the New Covenant. Instead... The central message of the New Testament is in proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Watch this. Watch this. Jesus' primary concern in his ministry, I think I have it, is to provide, not to provide a prescription for living well in the land, watch this, but to bestow spiritual life. A new life in the spirit that is eternal life. Watch this. Such new spiritual formation is the process of becoming Jesus' disciple. Hence, though in the New Testament we're not given any explicit mandate to marry and procreate physical human beings, we are given a new mandate to create more spiritual human beings, disciples in the form of Jesus as we read or find in the words of Matthew's great commission. So so watch this. In the Old Testament, it's about family. Go to that next slide. Family, children, land, prosperity. In the New Testament, it's about spiritual children, new birth, kingdom of God, and eternal fruit. That's an epoch shift. To be a part of the covenantal blessing is now that I have spiritual children. Multiplication of believers, leaders, and churches. That I have the new birth experience, not the natural birth experience. That I have the kingdom of God as my my beautific vision, and that ultimately my life is judged by eternal fruit, not fruit from my loins. This is a a gigantic shift. It's a monster shift. For those who were single, there was no way to participate in covenant life. So Jesus opens up the door and he says, hey, you don't have to be married to be a rock star in the kingdom of God. You don't have to be married. It's possible to get an inheritance that's better than those who are married, sons and daughters. And he says, this is a hard word. But if you can receive it, receive it. Now, I want to ask you a question. You ready? When's the last time you met someone who could get married, but they did not because they had such a beautiful eschatological vision from God? They had so much vision for their life that it transcended the cultural moment to be married and have sex. I think of a few. I think of one who's a missionary friend of mine, Celia Mendez. She's from Brazil, but she lives in Mozambique. We've served with her in Mozambique, and she's serving as a pastor out in the bush of Africa as a single female. She's the pastor of that community. She's been so seized by an eschatological vision of being married to the supper, the the lamb of the supper, the one that ultimately her heart desires and longs for that she says, you know what? It's going to usurp the cultural moment I live in. That's Jesus' words. And when you meet someone like that, you're like, who are you? And what do you have? Now, what would this possibly look like? That's where I got to get to. Now, remember, I'm, there's no physical requirements here. Okay? <laughs> what would it look like to say, I'm going to voluntarily become a eunuch for the kingdom? Well, I've put down four things that I think mark out these lives. Number one, devotion. When you talk about Jesus presenting it as an opportunity, it's about devotion. Everybody say devotion. 
It's a devotion to God himself. We have to learn, listen church, to get our primal relationship with God right and correct before we'll ever get our relationship with human beings correct, period. Listen, when you have a source of life flowing into you, you become a source of life to others who need something outside of you. That your devotion to God takes precedence. But watch this. When there's scarcity and no devotion of God coming into you, guess what happens? Desperation kicks in. And then Pastor Craig's got to get involved to try to break up would-be marriages, try to break up dating relationships because mom and dad are not approving of it. Why? Because they're scarce. They have no devotion to Jesus. They have no life flowing in them. So they're desperate from life horizontally. Listen, when we bring God-sized needs to human beings, they cannot possibly succeed. You will suffocate any potential of a marriage relationship if you try to place upon your spouse the needs that God alone can meet. So it's people, watch this, who voluntarily set aside the rights they have in marriage and they have a vision from God. Let me give you a quote from Ben Stewart. He said, the word devotion in Greek is the combination of two concepts. The word good or well, watch this, and the phrase to be close beside. I love this. It suggests both a passive element of sitting and listening to someone and an active element of tending to his or her desires. A great English word that captures this meaning of devotion to God is the word attentive. Think of a good waiter at a restaurant. He's attentive in both respects. Respects. He's attentive to your words, listening carefully as you speak, but he's also attentive to your wishes, working hard to fulfill your desires. We are meant to be attentive to the Lord. Watch this in the same way. Devotion expresses itself in attentiveness to his word and attending to his work. Study and service, pursuit of intimacy with him and activity that pleases him. What's he saying? We set aside the natural rights with a vision of getting our face close to his face. This third group of eunuchs says, you know what? I'm going to be like a waiter. And I'm going to wait on Jesus. I'm going to attend to his beauty. I'm going to get my face next close to his face. And a vision of the wonder of the person of Jesus alone is what can sustain this. You know, people say, oh, I'm going to do it. I'm fine. i got a pastor friend right now in our community who's pastor. And he says, I, I think I'm at that place where I'm not going to get married. I'm not looking for anyone. And I'm thinking, okay, amazing to accept that word. But number two, let me say something to you. Do you think that's able to be sustained apart from like just an absolute beautiful seizure of a heavenly vision from Jesus? To me, that's the only thing that can sustain it. It can't just be personal desires. It can't be asexual tendencies or asexual realities. It has to be a vision. It has to be a word from Jesus. Now, I know, I know we're wrestling with difficult words because we don't normally talk about these in our culture. But that's what Jesus said. That's how he communicated. So you say, Craig, what happens? If there's never a season in our life where we consciously, listen to me, do this, we will always live with the idea of Jesus, and the idea of Jesus is not strong enough to overcome the sin of our cultural moment. What are you saying, Craig? I'm saying everybody, even if you're going to get married one day, should have a season of undivided devotion to the Lord where you don't care about any other relationship other than Jesus because that's the only way you can have enough strength to overcome the sin of our cultural day. You won't have the ability to overcome that sin if you're consistently always looking for another relationship. It's got to be undivided devotion to Jesus. So Jesus, watch this, he invites you into a period of intimate devotion to him. I'm not saying all of you are going to be this way for your life, but everybody needs to be this way for some season of life. Fresh, frequent encounters with the Lord. Apart from any horizontal relationships, I'm devoted to the Lord. And watch this, once you get that vision from the Lord, then you're free to do number two. 
make a difference in the world. So number one is devotion. Number two is difference. When you are single, you have more freedom and time than you ever have in all of your life. Can I hear just a little bit of an amen? In Atlanta, the number one value of life, in Atlanta, the number one value of life is T-I-M-E. It is not money. We save money to take vacation. That means money serves time. I know friends who make a lot of money, and they said, I would trade my job for $30,000 in a 40-hour work week than 80 hours a week and $250,000. I hate my life because the value is time. Now watch this. You right now as a single person have more time than any other person on the planet right now. You have more time than children do because of ultimately your level of freedom. You have more time than old people do because your level of freedom is higher because your health is greater than old people. So married people, you certainly have more time than married people, certainly don't have the same level of freedom. And if you have kids, your life's basically over, okay? I mean, seriously, and everyone knows that. It's like a black hole of energy and attention. I mean, it's a beautiful black hole of energy and attention, but it's gone. I mean, your life is done. You pop out a kid, life is over. It's over. When I was single, I had 100% of my time to myself. When I got married, I had 50% of my time to myself. When I had three kids, they took the remaining 50%. People say, hey, did you see this? Did you watch that? Did you read this? Did you hear this? I just want to put up a sign and say, I didn't read, hear, listen, challenge, look at, study that. I have kids. You know, it's like, give me 20 years and I'll get back current, okay? They demand everything. Watch this. It's reported right now that the average person in America by the age of 21 will spend 10,000 hours playing video games. Listen. 10,000 hours playing video games. Now many of you know Malcolm Gladwell's theory. When you have 10,000 hours... I will promise you that's not what Malcolm Gladwell had in mind. In 10,000 hours, you can get an undergrad education completely, four years, and an entire master's education. In 10,000 hours, you can become world-class in anything if you set your heart to it and train correctly. Can I just say this with love? But I want to say it head on. I'm not being judgmental. I'm not being mean. I'm not being legalistic. But let me tell you something. The world around us is on fire. The world is burning down. It is falling apart at the seams. And we need people who are not heroes in an invisible, fantasized world. We need heroes in the real world. We need heroes in real life who learn to grow up and move beyond 10,000 hours of video games. We've got one life, one moment. We need your gifts. We need your passions. We need your engagement. We need your energy. The church, Jesus needs your attention. And listen, you can do what we can't do because you have the opportunity. You can do what your parents can't do because your parents are married. You can do. So please, please use this season of your life to make a difference in the world, to leverage what you have. You know, we think about FOMO in our congregation or our culture. FOMO, fear of missing out, right? I'm replacing FOMO with FOSO, which is the fear of squandering opportunities. I want to say to everybody here, it might not go viral, but I'm going to tell you, it'll shape eternity. This title of this message is FOSO is greater than FOMO. You should have more fear of squandering opportunities of singleness than you have fear of missing out on marriage. The fear of squandering the opportunity called singleness. 
of squandering the opportunity called, oh, I have all of my time to myself. I choose with my 100% of time where I'm going to put that time. Don't waste your singleness. You're going to blink. I'm going to tell you, and it's going to be over. You're going to blink, and it's done. And I can tell you, I'm only 34, so hopefully, listen, I'm not halfway done with life. I hope, I hope when I'm 45 and the pastor DP, I can say I'm halfway done. So at least I can make it to 90. But if I'm only 68 and I'm halfway done with my life, I'll go ahead and tell you at 34 years old, the biggest regrets I have in life are not mistakes. The biggest regrets in life are already missed opportunities. You don't regret mistakes as you get older. You regret opportunities you squandered. Opportunities you squandered. That you squandered in teenagehood. So we need you to make a difference in the world. Thirdly, this is Paul's heart, distraction-free. People who become eunuchs, they're distraction-free. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, 32 through 35, and I'll come close to landing this. Look at 32. He said, I would like for you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried man or woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be voted to the Lord in body and spirit, but a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way, watch this, in a right way culturally, and a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Some of you are like, okay, great, get it, a eunuch. But is it okay to want to be with someone, Pastor Craig? Yes, it is, absolutely okay. In fact, he said it's better to marry than to burn, right? Like with lust, it's absolutely better. But listen to me. If you're just constantly wanting someone, wanting someone, that's a very dangerous state if you're not focused. Because you can fall into distractions and you can squander the kairos moment in your life. Let me, let me give you an example. You have a bad Wednesday. You're single. You have a bad Wednesday. You come out of work. You're, you're worn out. You come home. You're exhausted. You open up your phone. You just start swiping Tinder profiles, right? And finally, you, before you know it, 30 minutes later, you've gone through 45 profiles on a dating app or a Tinder app, and you get to that place, and you find a match. You get surprised, and what do you do for the next two days? You sit there waiting for someone to touch you. You sit there waiting for someone to engage you. And you're thinking, did I, did I show the double chin? Did I have the wrong angle? What was up? I mean, like you know, your, your thoughts get absolutely consumed, overwhelmed with these thoughts. Or maybe you come to church. How many times have I seen it as a student pastor or a college pastor? You come to church and you are saturating in the Lord. Whoa, you come early, you pray over every seat, you touch every seat, you touch every seat back. You pray through the carpet, you pray through the altar, you pray over it, you touch every band member, every microphone, all the drums, you're praying for everything. It's a season of devotion. You're after God. You're here early. You're praying beforehand. Worship starts. Song one. You don't need no primer songs. Song one, your hands are as high as they can. You're not holding the TV. You're washing the windows. You're straight up like this, okay? You're not, you're not down here. You're up. You're in the presence of God. You're fully immersed. You're quoting scripture with your eyes closed. Pastor Chad gets up to preach, tells him to turn the Bible. You don't even look. You just close your eyes because the scripture is the cry of your heart. It's the cry of your heart. You're texting generous numbers to the text to give on Dwelling Places Planning Center because you're in tune with the Holy Spirit. 2020, yeah, I'll give 2020 a week if I need to, you know. I mean, you're in with the Lord. While I'm preaching, you're taking notes while affirming the preacher. That's the best thing. You say amen while still looking down. You don't just look down. You are in it, man. You are on top of the world. During response time, you're down here first. You're interceding for others. You're asking if people can be led to the Lord or, or can you help them in fasting? You feel sent out to serve all week and touch hurting humanity. And then a week later, the girl, you've been kind of closing your eyes a little bit to, to kind of just not see while you're worshiping. She's like, 
hey. You're like, hey. And then your pre-church game is black or blue, black or blue. If I wear black, will she think I'm joyless? If I wear blue, it's not yet spring yet, so uh, it's, you know I, I can't go show up early because I'm thinking black or blue, black or blue. And when I get to church, well, you know, is it is it godly cologne or ungodly cologne? So I need I just need a cologne that says godly cologne and, and put the godly. And then when I get here, should I use a paper Bible or my digital Bible? I use paper Bible because if I'm looking over and sharing with her my paper Bible or my phone Bible, and then somebody else who I reached out to tender they DM me, how awkward would that be right there? She'll see it on the screen. So so I got to use a paper. Bible, right? And then all, during worship, do I go all in? Do I not? I don't want to be a fanatic. I don't want her to think I'm crazy. I don't want her to look at me and think, oh, he is a crazy. The whole scene changes. That's what Paul says. Be distraction free. And how many people have we seen boom, drop out of the church because of that one issue? And that's what Paul's getting at. Now listen, we're going to get to dating in two weeks, but we do have people here like this. I think of Jerry. Single man, every week serving, leveraging his singleness, not just being immersed in a cultural moment. Faithful at every connect group, faithfully serving in this congregation, faithfully here in prayer nights. And Paul, he said he's got such a strong vision of the beauty of Jesus that you need to at least enjoy it for a little time of your life. And fourthly and finally, come on team, use this season for discovering who you are. Discovering who you are. If you all you do is jump from one relationship to the next, you will never know who you are. You're just becoming whatever anybody else wants you to be so they won't reject you. If you always date, you will never become who you are. You will always change who you are to impress who you're dating. You'll never have a sense of self. You'll never have a sense of your gifts. You won't know your calling. You won't know your preferences. And you'll always be dating. And in dating, you're always putting your best version of yourself forward. My question to you is, do you really know who you are? While you have the time, listen, if you have doubts about the Christian faith, oh my gosh, while you're single, you should be ferociously trying to find answers. If you have theological questions as a single person, you should be going after those theological answers as fast as you can. You should leave nothing unexplored when it comes to your relationship with God. You should figure out your own calling, figure out your own faith. What's your vacation? You can make job shifts right now that you can't make later when you've got kids. You can't make job shifts five years from now, but you can make job shifts right now. You can find where it is that God's called you. You've got to know what your preferences are. Soren Korkegaard said, now with God's help, I shall become myself. Did you get that? Now with God's help, I shall become myself but if you're not getting God's help but you're only getting the help of everybody else you're dating you'll only be a version of yourself you'll never become yourself if you're looking for other people's help not God's help you'll never be you you'll never become you so this is a time to discover who you are to discern you who you are why because listen church the Christian identity is the only identity that doesn't gain its sense of worth from others but God alone it's the only identity and if you never root in that you'll always be broken and your identity will be built on others. So listen, I don't want you, I want you to see Jesus says this is an opportunity. Now I know some people look at it like this and they try to hyper-spiritualize this, right? And I don't want to do that, which is often what people do. Like, you know, Jesus and I, we're just single right now and it's just so good and we're just dancing and having amazing times together. And I'm like, no, no, okay, it's hard. Be real. If you say God told me more than four times in one sentence, I'm out. Okay, because I've read the whole Bible and Jesus don't even talk like that. If God told me, God told me, God told me, God told me, I'm done. Okay, I'm already out of it, okay? So don't hyper-spiritualize this. You hear more than Jesus hears, you know? So this should be the tension. This should be the tension. 
you should feel this. And some days you're obsessed and some days you're opposing. You should feel this as a single person. You should feel this tension all the time. You're, you're moving back and forth. Why? Because that's the reality of what it means to be single. It's hard, but, but I'm feeling these swings. I want to tell you, friends, if you're single in this room, there is nothing worse than giving in to temptation and destroying your Christian confidence because you think the world is right. And there's nothing worse than marrying the wrong person because you're lonely. I've seen horror stories who don't take people, don't take Jesus at his word. They try to sit on the seat of sovereignty and make their own decisions. When you make your own decisions, it unleashes heartache. Married couples, can I get an amen? There's nothing worse than being married and being alone. There's nothing worse than being married and hating your sex life. There is nothing worse than being married and feeling three miles away from your spouse. You're better off just keeping your freedom. Keeping your freedom. So Jesus comes to the scene. He says, can you get a theological vision for your singleness? I want to tell you, you can become a person of consequence for the kingdom of God. And final thing, we need to be a church that creates a family type environment where singles can thrive. You know what the Lord started convicting me this week? Every issue we celebrate in the church has to do with the family. We celebrate engagement parties. We celebrate bridal parties. We celebrate weddings. We celebrate baby showers. What if we became a church that started celebrating promotions of our friends? Oh, you got a promotion? How would it feel to be a single person for the rest of your life to come to every event celebratory in the church and it always has to do with relational celebrations? So we have to be a church where single people can thrive. What do we want to do? We want to reach young adults. One-fourth of young adults will not ever be married by the age of 50. That's 25% of our culture. 25%. We've got to be a place where singles can thrive. Where singles can thrive. And I know what you're thinking. Hang on, Craig. You didn't cover dating, porn, sex, marriage. Two weeks. I want to tell you, moms and dads, make sure you utilize the nursery. We're going to cover porn, singleness. I'm going to cover masturbation. We're going to cover godly dating. We're going to cover the idea of sexual formation, healthy and not sexual deformation. We're going to hit it head on. But listen to me. When you think of what it is that God would have for you to do right now as a single person, know and affirm that Jesus is our true lover. Jesus is our true comfort. Jesus is our true life. Jesus is our true provision. He is. And identity can only be found in Him. Listen, marriage will end. Singleness will end. But your covenant relationship with God will never end end will never end thank you so much for listening to this week's message if you would like more information about our church be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org